Okay, let's see if this works. So hopefully you enjoyed that. We're, um, I mean, as you can see from that video, we're a truly global and diverse business. Our network connects lots of kind of interesting assets in over 20,000 locations, uh, 70 plus countries, and um, often in some of the most kind of poorly connected parts of the world. So, I mean, basically we're operating at ma massive scale and complexity, and so the breadth of cloud connectiv connectivity use cases that we see and their complexity tend to get amplified in our environment. And so we hope that um, or some of the problems that we've solved and the way we've solved them will hopefully provide some useful reference points for, for all of you. Um, <clears throat> our journey to cloud um, started in 2015 when we declared that we would be a cloud-first business. And that was a pretty big statement um, internally within BP and kind of basically said we wanted to get out of the business of running infrastructure. And one of the many challenges we faced um, was that our move to cloud was heavily constrained. And sorry, our move to cloud, whether that be Amazon, SaaS, um, rolling out O365, it was heavily constrained by our legacy network. Um, this network had been uh, optimized for data center hosting. Um, we, um, what, what kind of little business class internet traffic we had back then, we backhauled over MPLS links to central 
gateways and security control points in our data centers. Um, historically, IT had been seen as a hygiene factor in BP um, rather than strategic, and that's very different now. But um, that meant back then that we had um, the network had suffered from years of underinvestment, and so many devices were approaching end of life. Um, circuits were, were near capacity, and um, yeah, so, so I, mean, I guess our, our agility was further inhibited by a set of outcome-based commercial agreements, um, where, which were kind of not optimized for um, rapid change, and so kind of typically they were underpinned by a lot of process-heavy governance, uh, we'd outsource a lot of technical skills, and um, yeah, so it was just kind of, is kind of, just just really kind of really difficult. So we kind of knew that we needed to completely rethink our approach to our, our network architecture and our, and our operating model, and we set ourselves these six goals. Firstly, we wanted to um, facilitate access to a well, rapid, performance, and secure access to a multitude of different cloud uh, providers and cloud services. Um, secondly, uh, to support the data center exit ambition of our cloud-first strategy, we needed to externalize our network exchange points, which historically we had located in our data centers. Um, thirdly, we wanted to be able to scale the network um, elastically to support rapid change in traffic patterns and traffic volumes and um, support mass migration. Thirdly, it was also important for us to um, be able to deploy new network functionality on the network to support rapidly changing requirements. And so we wanted the ability to be able to keep the, uh, to evergreen the network and, and keep the functionality of the network evergreen. Our overall um, IT transformation is about moving to a flexible, or sorry, to a variable cost base um, with consumption-based charging. So we wanted to align the network to the rest of our core services. And then finally, we wanted to be able to deploy uh, network functionality consistency, consistently across the network so that we could provide a consistent user experience. So I'm now going to um, hand over to Alai, who's going to take you through or pick up the story here and how we architected against these requirements. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Great context. Uh, I think we now have a pretty good idea in terms of the goals and outcomes that this network transformation had to achieve both operationally and functionally in order to achieve the cloud-first outcomes that we've planned for. So I think right now I'll, I'll try to go through uh, how we went about this transformation and maybe describe the key building blocks of the network that we put in place in order to interconnect to AWS and other cloud providers. And I think the, the main concentration or focus for this session is primarily how our backbone evolved uh, to provide that global and consistent way by which we connected to the cloud. So uh, I think I'd like to jump in and start talk about the architectural choices that we had to make. And I think in making these choices, we effectively had to answer three key questions. So these questions were effectively, what was our you know, cloud uh, hosting objectives? What did, it mean, what did it mean to be cloud first? And the second key question was, what level of, of trust we placed in the cloud? So when we say we trust the cloud, how do we trust it? Do we trust the security of the cloud, the reliability of the cloud, the feature richness of its services? And the third was how we as an organization, how ready we were we to embrace a cloud-first strategy? What did it mean for us as an organization to do so? So ultimately, the answer to these questions was, was effectively uh, kind of served the initial boundary conditions by which we thought about transforming this network. I mean, we understood early on that that, that these answers were effectively a point in time view and they would evolve over time at, as the level of maturity of our own organization and the maturity of the cloud services uh, also matured over time. So, you know, in our mind, the, the architecture that, had to, that we had to implement, the network itself had to be flexible enough to account for these variations in requirements over time. So uh, whether it was throughput, whether the points of presence where we had to extend this network or even the functionality. We had to ensure that, that 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 architecture was flexible enough and modular. So what did it mean to be flexible and modular in our view? It meant three, really, three things. First, we needed to decouple our, our services from the data centers because we wanted to facilitate uh, exiting and closures of these data centers. Um, so what that meant is we opted to co-locate whatever infrastructure components or, or points of presence at care and neutral facilities. 
And obviously that provided us easy reach to a number of services from a marketplace, which was very different than the way we've historically approached communication and services, which we brought into the data center. The second thing was we understood early on that we needed to federate our backbone. So we come a, from a model where we had a global backbone anchored by, let's say, four or six points of presence globally. Uh, now, when translating what cloud first meant, we understood that over time there will be a demand, an increase in demand for more and more uh, local and regional hosting, uh, cloud hosting regions. Simply because our, our presence, I mean, we operate in a lot of countries and we have a lot of business line of business applications that would demand hosting, uh, uh, regional hosting. So that meant for us that we would experience an increase in the number of connection points and potentially an increase in the number of cloud service provider environments that we had to connect. So, so well, when we say federated backbone, what did that mean? What, what that really meant is we, need, we needed to move away from a global architecture in favor of a, more, a hierarchical regional-based architecture uh, where we can effectively anchor that in multiple uh, nodes or backbone points of presence that we would host at these carrier neutral facilities. So think about going, going away, moving away from having six points of presence to potentially 18 and providing optimal access into this, these cloud environments through those lo local connections. And third was we needed to have an, a, a modular architecture, which meant that even our backbone nodes, these points of presence, had to be designed so that they can be extended and have limited footprint, that we can introduce functionality easily. So what that meant is we needed to move towards a software-defined architecture. So that's the first time we as an organization, a network organization, we embraced software-defined architectures and network virtual uh, fu function virtualization. Okay, so, um, so I think that's architectural choices. But, but, all, but in addition to architectural choices, there was other implications. Coming from an environment where we were heavily outsourced, uh, it meant that we had a multitude of third parties, suppliers that managed and monitored our network ensure that it was stable and up and running. But it also meant that it drove innovation into our solutions. What that left us with is a lack of internal capability, whether it's skill set, resources, uh, to actually embrace some of the newer technologies, disruptor technologies, you know, cloud native solutions and open source solutions. So we were, it was very hard for us to experiment and stitch together solutions that we could deliver. So what that meant is that we were heavily biased in favor of best of breed solutions, right? Solutions that we've had previous experience with, they're purpose-built, previously integrated, we've tested, so we're, we're comfortable. But also, uh, we, we kind of, we had a, we were quite favorable looking at vendors that delivered, you know, an integ integrated technology stack. So a solution end-to-end -end that could deliver our network and security outcomes end-to-end. -end. And that's actually quite evident in the choice of SDN fabric that we actually picked and some of the virtual appliances that we currently run and implement in our in our backbone. <clears throat> the other thing is, of course, we continued the practice of consuming outcome-based management services because we, in parallel, had to start the process of upskilling our organization and scaling out that organization in order to, 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 to bring in a new operating model. And one other key aspect, I think, is that's fundamental here is that we also kept it simple. What that meant is that we, we effectively deployed these solutions and services, but we kept them very basic. There were very well understood patterns, very well tested patterns. There was no customization. And the reason we did that is because we wanted to kind of prioritize the availability and the performance of whatever we deployed over you know, advanced functionality to, to address edge use cases. And that's, it's actually really hard, and it's, but it was critical to us being able to maintain pace of deployment. And the other uh, three key area, I think, is our security posture. So, so what did it mean for us, the answer to these questions? What it meant that we wanted to continue extending our existing security practices because we simply didn't feel comfortable enough in what the cloud and uh, the new way of working meant. So it meant central security boundaries, but we opted to distribute some of those controls that we implement centrally out to the cloud. It meant that we would continue the practice of micro-segmentation, but maybe you know, replace some of the practices with, with what the cloud had to offer. But also more importantly, some of the key and, the key and critical traffic flows that we managed, we opted to, to proxy them centrally. And I'll cover, I'll cover that shortly later on. Okay, so what does this regional connectivity model look like? I mean, this is a, quite a high level view of what our connectivity into the cloud looks like in, any, in, a, in a particular metro. But, but effectively, 
we have a concept of a backbone node, and that backbone node uh, effectively in, uh, interconnects a, a number of uh, networks. These networks could be internal networks, they could be external networks, but, they, but, but that backbone node effectively stitches together these networks in a very secure fashion. Uh, and it delivers really four key functions. Uh, it, it obviously serves as a termination point and an aggregation point for uh, our voice and data transport circuits. Like I said, it interconnects internal and external networks. So the internet, the cloud service provider networks, our intranet, our third parties. It also allows us to host internal and external facing applications, so DMZ services. And on top of that, it provides uh, specific user services. Uh, so remote access services for our teleworkers, uh, internet access for you know, internal users, as well as uh, enables users on the internet to access our web applications, the applications that we host internally. So what is actually, <coughs> uh, what comprises this, uh, this backbone node, right? So, so it's, it's, it, this node itself, it's a software-defined uh, uh, environment, it's a software-defined fabric, and it has local hosting, uh, sorry, compute and storage capability because we run a lot of our control and management plane functions at, at that point of presence. And we also run a lot of ancillary network applications such as DHCP, DNS, network time, and a few others. And also this node allows us to insert additional security functions when we need them virtually. And I'll cover some of that as we get to the security slides. Um, the other key and important bit about this backbone node is it effectively interconnects to all of our networks. So you see here it connects to our data centers and we use uh, DWDM services or point-to-point -point services to point-to-point -point circuits to interconnect to these data centers. The node itself hosts two NNIs. These NNIs represent our, the way this particular node interconnects into our global backbone. Uh, so we bring in NNIs from our, from our uh, MPLS uh, providers there. We also uh, consume direct connect services, right? So, uh, and I'll cover th this in a minute, but because we, has to, we host this at a care neutral facility, some of the key uh, decisions that we make when picking a facility where we, we would host this node is obviously the availability of a local uh, cloud uh, point of presence, i.e. direct connect pop in this case. And also we look at you know, the proximity of this facility to our own metros, i.e. the data center and our population centers. We also look at um, the, the breadth of the marketplace ecosystem within that particular facility. In other words, what services can we consume above and beyond this? So can we get access to carriers that we work with? Can we get access to services such as you know, internet? Can we peer with other SaaS providers, internet peer, for example? So these are all kind of consideration we take into account when we pick a care neutral facility. But also when, you know, and I'll come to this in a minute, but we also look at whether we can achieve physical diversity for a particular metro. So, because we, we, you know, and I'll cover this in a minute, but we, we, we look to deploy dual nodes within our regional network because we want to maintain a higher level of resilience and, and availability. Uh, the node itself is, is really uh, very comprised of, uh, you know, it's very high throughput or high, high capacity node. It's modular, so we've got all the components are kind of redundant. They're kind of sized at uh, a minimum of 20 gigabits per second. We have the option to scale each of these components to, to support 40 gigabits per second. All the interconnects, the, the cross connects effectively that locally connect this node to all the various networks are at 10 gigabits per second. And the fabric itself is rated at 40 gigabits per second and we have the ability to scale uh, horizontally when needed to increase that throughput. Um, so, so it's effectively a very high throughput environment. When we, when we take this, when we wanna deploy a regional uh, network, so what does that regional network look like? What we ultimately end up doing is we deploy two nodes within a particular metro. Uh, each, uh, so we take the same node design and we replicate it at another carrier facility. We, we interconnect this node to the same internal and external networks, but we ensure that we do so in a, in a very physically diverse manner. So we don't share the same carriers, we don't share the same infrastructure, we don't, we don't same the share pop, same the share pops, because what we wanna do is ensure that they're independent of each other. Okay, um, so effectively what you have is that each node has dual connections into the regional data centers. It has connections into a local 
direct connect pop for access to AWS. It's got dual NNIs, so no single failure of an NNI would cause an outage, for example. And at the, at the same time, for each VPC uh, that we host at a given AWS region, we provision a virtual private interface. And we use that interface to logically establish layer three connectivity between that regional network and, and the VPC. So look at, I mean, consider that at a per node level. And so what we ultimately do is we exchange routing information using BGP and we, we do so in an active passive model. So we advertise default routes into the VPC because we want to avoid uh, uh, any VPC prefix limits. And we also set uh, routing preferences using that protocol. Um, so I would say that uh, in terms of the availability of, of the actual regional network itself, I think this is rated at five nines. If looking at AWS specifically, uh, our interconnects into, into AWS at each of these nodes is about four nines. And when you combine this with a dynamic failover with BGP and a few other methods, we, we achieve five nines. Now, obviously this is rated towards the DMARC, which represents our interconnect into the AWS POP. Uh, but I think historically over the past four years, we've, we've effectively been able to achieve the same level or at least measure the same level of availability of the AWS network. Uh, so it is about five nines when you take into account that dual homed topology and the dynamic routing that we implement. Um, so in addition to that, we also you know, leverage a number of methods to ensure that any single component failure doesn't result in you know, an extended outage. So we implement methods like BFD. We use lag, for example, to combine circuits. We mess around with a bit with, with protocol timers, convergence timers to reduce that reconvergence time. And that, all of that attributes to that availability rating that I've talked about. So, so that's what a regional uh, kind of design looked like. It's effectively two backbone nodes, high throughput, inter heavily interconnected, um, and they connect kind of equally to all of our environments. So when we take this design and we try to deploy it to another region, for example, we, we have to make some adjustments to our design principles because we want to take into account some of the specific uh, region-specific variances, right? So if you, if you look to the left-hand side here, in the US, we, we don't have two data centers. We are we're present, we have four data centers. We don't have two metros. We, have, we don't have one metro, we have two metros. And we have distances we're dealing with, right? So we have presence in Chicago, we have presence in Houston, and it's about 1,200 miles away. So replicating exactly the same design doesn't necessarily work. So what we've, what we've done is we've spread that dual node topology across two metros. So we have one in Chicago and we have one in Dallas. And what we've done is kind of re-architected that interconnectivity, i.e. the back-end connections between that backbone, uh, these backbone nodes and, and the data centers and our metros so that we achieve that you know, higher level of resiliency and capacity. So what maybe looks like uh, four DWDM individual circuits may translate into about eight or six depending on you know, which year we're talking about here. But, but effectively, we have to adapt that design in order to achieve that, you know, that availability rating. So at, you know, as, as of today, we've effectively deployed four backbone nodes to service in, in three metros, right? Chicago, Dallas, and London. And we uh, service two regions. We, we, we service the EMEA, and also we service uh, the Americas. We're currently considering extending this architecture into another uh, region primarily Asia-Pacific, and we're looking at the Singapore metro as a potential uh, place where we'd host our uh, backbone nodes there. So in terms of the traffic flow, however, I'd like to kind of cover a few of these. Um, so one important factor here is, is, is to point out is that any inter-VPC communication, whether it's VPC to VPC in the same AWS region or it's VPC to VPC in a different AWS region, that traffic remains local to the AWS backbone. So we use VPC peering or global VPC peering to ensure that happens. We do not proxy this communication via our regional nodes. Obviously, we want to achieve high throughput and low latency, and that's kind of the model where fits best. Contrary to that, however, all traffic that's destined to the internet or from the internet into the workloads in the VPCs, is, is our, these workflows are, these flows are, pro, are proxied centrally through the, through the, through the, node, the regional network, and I'll cover those later. Um, 
the other thing is that any AWS region that we have a VPC hosted and is accessible globally to any user or, 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 or location or, or branch office. So that means there is no need to hairpin the traffic or send the traffic through a, a data center, for example, or intermediary point to get to that region. What effectively happens is all the users connect through this global MPLS network and then egress to that, egress that network at the point where that's closest to that region. So usually the closest backbone node. Um, what we haven't done so far yet is leverage the AWS backbone as a means to facilitate inter-regional communication between BP and AWS. And what I mean by that is today, if we had a user that sat, let's say, in, in the US, uh, or we had a metro that sat in the US, a user at a metro in the US, and wanted to connect to a, an AWS region, let's say, in Dublin. Today, that traffic routes via that backbone node onto the MPLS network, then egresses the European uh, points of presence in this case, and then goes on to AWS. The alternate to that is, of course, to egress locally, get onto the AWS network quickly, and then use that backbone to route over to that VPC. We haven't, we haven't done that yet, but that's another alternative option that could be considered. Um, so one other thing to also point out is uh, our existing uh, application footprint that resides in these data centers, we don't, we, don't, we don't force that traffic to go through these backbone nodes yet because we're still maintaining the MPLS points of presence at these data centers for the time being. Okay, so I think, I don't know how much how we're doing for time, but I think we've covered a little bit around the architecture and probably want to jump in and talk about how do we actually secure this environment? What, is it, what, does a node, what does that node segmentation look like? So we talked about it's a software-defined fabric. We talked about that node is a point of presence for the network, and it interconnects a, a number of disparate networks effectively of different trust levels. But how do we actually secure the data flows that, that, that traverse this node, and, and how do we maintain that segmentation? What we effectively do is we actually break down this this architecture, this fabric, into three different uh, virtual security zones. We call these tenants. And the tenants effectively are just a, a grouping of resources, yeah? A grouping of, of network uh, hardware or software resources, applications, users, circuits, that we feel are, are effectively have the same trust level and have the same access uh, privileges and uh, have the same access policies applied to them. And so what differentiates these trust levels is effectively the level of trust we place on the, on the, on the resources that are, are housed within these tenants. So we have a trusted tenant, and what that effectively means is that we have a set of resources that BP as an organization uh, controls and secures and has absolute administrative access to, to, the, to these resources. So the BP network effectively all is housed in that trusted tenant. Then we have an untrusted tenant, and I think it's quite clear what that is. It's the internet, but what that really means is we as, a BP, as an organization, we, don't have, we have limited control over these resources and the users and the endpoints, and we have actually limited visibility of what goes on there, so we consider them untrusted. So the internet is one, is obviously third parties kind of flow into that category. And then we have a semi-trusted tenant, and well, it's effectively things that we, we do tr trust, but not, not quite yet. What it effectively means is that we actually share the responsibility of securing these resources with other third parties. Yeah? So in this particular case, a virtual private, private cloud fits that model because at the infrastructure level, we have no control. We operate at a higher, higher stack. So, so, so these virtual tenants effectively run their own administrative domains. They have their own virtual routing domains, and they're anchored by a set of dedicated hardware components. So you've got dedicated routers, dedicated switches, dedicated circuits. Uh, effectively, all of these uh, are, are delivered within that node at a per-tenant level. And we have something what we call a security gateway or security gateways. And these effectively are your traditional next-generation firewalls or an active, act, always active protections, IDS and IPS. And these, these gateways effectively tie or link up these tenants together. So, so they effectively serve as a method by which we isolate communication or, or, or separate uh, these tenants from each other. And these gateways sit in line. So any, any traffic that flows between these tenants, and there's three tenants here, so there's a number of flows that, could be, that are possible here, about eight different types of flows. All of these flow through these security gateways. So as a result, we apply default level restrictions. And it depends from where you're going to where, you, uh, to where you're headed, right? So 
you know, the type of restrictions that we may apply between a, a transition from a semi-trusted to a trusted may be completely different than the level of controls that we apply from an untrusted to a trusted tenant. So that varies. So quite a bit of policies to manage. But what's also important here is that while these effectively exist as fixed set of security controls that we implement, we, have, we also have the ability to implement controls ad hoc, right, on a per flow basis. So what does that mean? It really means that if there is a particular flow that we're interested in protecting, and that flow, let's say, moves from an untrusted environment to a trusted environment, then we have the ability to spin up a number of security applications or functions, such as web application firewalls. Um, we may want to SSL terminate the connection and inspect it. We might want to apply some host-based load balancing or routing. We may want to uh, you know, execute some web content filtering policy or what have you. So we have the ability to do so. And the way we do it is we instantiate what we call a DMZ function, and we tie that DMZ function to that flow. And as a result, we achieve the, the, the controls that we want to achieve. Now, I think it's, it's, it's also it's worth, it's worth noting that, that our security approach is really, it, it revolves around two principles, right? So not, it's, it, first is that we, we rely on protection and detection as me, both mechanisms as means to, to protect our data and to ensure the confidentiality and the integrity, authenticity of, the, of our assets, right? So what that means is that not only do we apply active controls like that we've been talking about here, but we also apply passive type controls, which means we've got, we rely on elements within these, within these boundaries where we can capture the data, analyze the data, inspect the data, correlate the data from that, that raw data, and also even correlate other events as they come in. And then as a result of that, gain insight and then and then create customized protections based on these insights. So that's why it's critical for us. And the other thing is that we obviously apply or conform to the least privilege uh, model, right? Which means what really translates to here is that we have quite a, a number of micro-segmentations that we deploy, and also that we have quite granular restrictions and access policies. And so we try to, to use that model and all to secure all of the environments that we, we own. So whether it's an environment in our private data centers or it's an environment like this where it's co-located at a third-party facility or even virtual data centers in, in a, our VPCs in AWS. So this backbone node and the design here effectively conforms to these requirements, right? I'm not going to go through all of them here, but they're quite extensive. But suffice to say that this design meets those requirements. And we've been able to as well, to some extent, or actually to a large extent, replicate a lot of these active control functionality out into the cloud. So what does that mean? I mean, we've, we didn't opt to deploy an NVA, for example, or a virtual appliance to, to provide east-west protection or north-south protection. We relied on security groups and NACLs, for example. I mean, similarly, we didn't, <laughs> Excuse me, we didn't, we, we didn't have to go and deploy routers within uh, uh, AWS VPC in order to, to achieve, you know, uh, uh, isolation of different routing domains. We relied on the VPC concept and, uh, and subnets, for example, that, you know, as opposed to VLANs. We, we leveraged other services like VPC flow logs, uh, like, you know, CloudTrail, CloudWatch to, to achieve that richness of and information around the events and and the incidents that occur. And we integrate those, these data points back into our internal tools, our SIM tools. So what, what, that, what, what that really means, however, is that while we've been able to do a lot with the existing controls within AWS, that overall security strategy has a, a passive component that we haven't been able to replicate yet in AWS. And I stress the word yet, because I think over the next 12 to 18 months, I think we'll get there. Uh, okay. so. So I'm going to cover, so I guess one more point here is that because of that, we have to proxy some services or some flows centrally. And I'll cover, I'll briefly cover those because I think we're running out of time. Uh, here's one. So outbound access to the internet. I just want to highlight the fact here is that this is moving from a higher trust, le, a trust tenant into a lower tr trust tenant. It goes through a number of security points here. What you see in the middle is what we call an egress DMZ. And that egress DMZ applies a number of applications or functions to that data. You know, it does malware protection. We do uh, FQDM-based filtering, uh, a number of traditional functions that we apply to, to, to communications that egresses our boundaries. 
I think what's important to note here is that with, at any transition point, so whether it's between, let's say, across that fixed boundary or within that DMZ, pre-proxy or post-proxy, we have the ability, or, and we actually do, capture traffic traversing these boundaries at line rate. And we tag that data. We correlate it with other data sources. So log information from these, from these applications, for example, and we correlate that in order to achieve additional insight intelligence on what's going on. Uh, I'll leave that here. I think, I think we're running a bit out of time. The next one is, is another key one, actually, is inbound access to the internet. And that's one flow that we have opted to centralize via these regional uh, backbone nodes. So again, this whole concept, we have an, an ingress DMZ, because that DMZ and the applications that re reside within it uh, uh, effectively act on the traffic as it enters our, uh, you know, come, moves from a lower trust uh, level to a higher trust level. So you'll see here we have a cell termination, we do inspection, we do re-encryption, re, uh, re and we do, a bunch of, we do sandboxing and a number of other functionality here before we, we clear the traffic to, to get back into our higher trust environments. Okay. Uh, so I think, what, do we, what does it look? How did we get here? I think, I want to stress that we've really been only covering this at a very high level. There's a lot of details and data that exist behind what you're seeing here. And we just don't simply have the time to do so and to cover here. But, but I'm going to breeze through this. I think it's important to note uh, these are the transition points along this journey. I think our target is to enable mass adoption, which means all of our applications can be in the cloud. They can be in any cloud. Anybody can attempt to consume any cloud. Where we started with, with is effectively early adoption. We've got a number of groups that want to effectively try out various functions within AWS, and we had to deliver some functionality or some connectivity to them. Traditionally, that meant in a low bandwidth, low availability solutions like internet VPNs. These were shared, and there were no SLAs associated with them. The support model was quite rigid because it, you know, we're trying, effectively trying to, uh, <laughs> we're trying to you know, uh, implement a cloud, a new pattern in cloud connectivity using a, a legacy uh, operation, operational processes. So fast forward two years, or three years, and two years, 2017, we, we now have a global architecture. Uh, and that global architecture is quite scalable. It's modular. It's high throughput. And we are able to federate it to any region we need, we need to quite quickly. Um, and it also represents really a, a shadow network, if you'd like, because it's the first network that we have that is completely independent of our data centers. So we can now start exiting these data centers, moving services along the way. What's important, I want to I just briefly cover 2019. What, what is it for us 2019? I think Paul will talk to it a bit more as, he, as we jump into his uh, bit and we conclude this presentation. But, but four key things we want to do here. Uh, let me start by saying is that we, we're going to, we're going to really move away from this outcome-based service, services and move towards an in-source or a, a hybrid operating model where we, we, have, uh, we have an agile development and operation of the network. Yeah? The second thing is we want to re-architect our, uh, our, our network within the cloud. So we want to move, uh, we want to change that to achieve that mass adoption. And then the third is we'd have to re-architect our branches. What does the branch look like? I mean, ultimately, the goal we're trying to do is we want to do a direct access from the branch to the cloud, as opposed to having to come through the backbone node. Uh, we want to increase our visibility of this communication, and we want, we want to be able to route traffic based on the conditions of the network, so performance-based routing, additional visibility, software-defined overlay networks. So that's 2019. Uh, we also want to automate a lot of these operational processes, yeah? So we want to automate the firewall change process, for example. We want to automate provisioning of a lot of these functions that you see, whether it's creating a new VIF or uh, SSL termination profile or what have you. We want to automate that. Uh, and I, we also want to re-architect uh, our, our design in the cloud, in AWS, to support transit routing. So that's a hub-and-spoke model. Okay? Okay, how much are we doing? How are we doing for time? We've got 12 Okay, good. So I'm, I'm, I've got a, few, a couple of slides I want to cover, and I think I'll, I'll cover those quickly. So what really has worked well for us, and I'm just going to cover a few points here, that marketplace was actually very good because it's really a fundamental to our, to our design. We're able to deploy to any region, 
We don't have to bring in our connections into our data centers. We went to, to a location that had all the connections. If we wanted to consume an internet service at three gigabits per second, we could. If we want to drop it to one gig, we could. If you want to go up to 10 gig, we could. So that flexibility was key. And look, in, look, look closely at that space. These marketplace carrier neutral facilities are expanding their own offerings. So what didn't exist four years ago, if you looked four years ago and thought that these services weren't there, look again, because these, these are changing and evolving quickly. The other thing that was key, I think, is, is speed of deployment. Um, the, reason, the reason that was key for us, because we, there was no way we were going to release three different, two different releases of that backbone node at six different locations at the scale of BP's network <laughs> on a live environment in 18 months without, without doing something right. And what was right is we kept it simple, so we didn't overcomplicate the world. We didn't deploy every single feature out there. Yeah, so we kept it very basic. Also, and we, we kind of applied similar patterns, right? It's just the design could be repeated. We, did, we, we, we didn't deviate a lot from there. And it was not popular in some, in some time, so we had to push a lot back, but it was critical for us to ensure that we delivered something that was scalable and on time. And the other thing that I think I'll just cover here is the capacity and reliability of native solutions. So when we started this, the first, one of the questions I said, well, we didn't really understand, we didn't really trust the cloud, we didn't know what that meant from a security and reliability perspective or a capacity perspective or services. What did that mean? Well, we, 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 understood, we understand now what it meant. It, was, it is scalable. It's reliable. It certainly is as reliable as some of the services that we, you know, we run today outside. Now, there are some things that don't exist. In other words, you can't implement quality of service on the AWS backbone just for your own traffic. But, but you've got massive capacity. Do you really need it? So you need to start thinking in those terms. So I'll cover, I think, uh, I think this is good here. Obviously, you know, the phasing was key as well and you know, consistency of performance, and that's just... But let me cover a little bit as what has been a bit challenging. <laughs> as you can see, there's quite a few. So optimizing traffic flow was actually a very challenging environment, especially in a model where we've actually decided to proxy a lot of these flows centrally because of the security controls and applications we wanted to implement, yeah? So, so in other words, I have a workload, an application that sits in Dublin. It wants to talk to a public AWS service, yet I'm sending it to... London first. So that, that's all right. I mean, it's six, 10 milliseconds on a good day. But what about in the US? We have, we were hosted in, in Ohio, but our nodes are in Chicago and in Dallas. You know how much latency that is? Imagine if that's a database call, what, what, what that actually means. So that's been a challenge. But again, so the more we're able to move a lot of these controls out to the cloud, the more that we're able to break that pin. And we're starting to see that happen. The other thing is data migration. Uh, so that sounds like it's, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not a big uh, thing, but it actually is. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not a data center with, a, with one single connection end-to-end -to, -end to a target, a target VPC. It's, it's a metro connection to the backbone, uh, to, to the node. It's a direct connect circuit that goes across a carrier facility and then jumps onto the AWS backbone and then gets into a virtual construct. So it's really hard to ensure that you have the end-to-end -end performance of that network, that connection that you need. And not only that, right? So this is the WAN aspects of this communication. There's other aspects that you need to be, to, to be cognizant of. So what type of applications and services and processes run on the source system where that data reside? Does, that, does the actual server have enough capacity, NIC capacity? Is it sitting in a data center block that is constrained some way, somehow? So these are all type of things that affect your ability to migrate the data at scale. I mean, there's a number of other factors, but just want to clarify here is that the network is critical to this data migration. So if you have a data migration team that's responsible for migrating your, your applications, you need to embed network resources in that team. Okay, so that's critical. And I think the other one here is, is managing user experience. You know, so, I mean, we've got some critical uh, applications that we host in our data centers and the users effectively sit half a mile away from that data center. So they're used to like local area network level speeds, yeah? Yeah, sub one millisecond access. And all of a sudden we've unplugged that data, that, that application and moved it to Ohio. And they're expecting that they're gonna transact with this data at one millisecond response time. That's just not gonna happen. 
So <laughs> you need to set the user expectations and, and look to, to perform some application performance testing before you decide to move this application to the cloud. Because if the application is chatty, if the protocol is sequential, tough luck. <laughs> You're going to get some very unhappy customers. Um, and operational visibility. I guess the last one is also important, IP address consumption. I mean, when we started this, we said, well, we've got RFC 19 address space. Pfft. I mean, how much how are we going to run out of space? We've got plenty. Well, okay, so now we have dual cloud strategy, then we have dual regions, and we have three AZs. Okay, so we're running out. Okay, so be careful here. <laughs> I think I'm about to conclude here, so I think I've covered quite a bit. Uh, and I kind of want to... Uh, give it back to Paul, uh, who's going to uh, discuss what's next for us, uh, BP, and then uh, provide some key messages. Cool. <clears throat> Thanks, Alain. So I think in the interest of time, um, Alain's kind of touched on a number of these. So, I mean, firstly, we would definitely go for, whilst we've centralized a lot of our service chains, at, um, our kind of core internet interconnect aggregation points, um, we would definitely recommend that you try to go to a model where you move a lot of your network services straight out into the cloud providers, and that's definitely what we're planning to do next. Um, use of cloud-native products over, over um, non-native products. Um, again, we've um, got a lot more confidence. We believe that the security, the reliability um, of those products is, um, is, you know, has, has kind of surprised us. and. Um, um, as we look at our functional requirements, um, we see benefits of using native cloud products um, far outweigh any perceived functional gaps. <coughs> um, we've moved to a DevOps-aligned operation model. That's a whole other story which we won't um, have time to talk about now. Um, and architecture. Architecture um, is no longer for us domain-specific and um, characterized by fixed transitional states. We're seeing that architecture is in constant flux and initial boundary conditions will change over time and as such the architecture um, needs to be flexible to, to respond to those boundary conditions. We're also finding that architecture needs to take an enterprise-wide view um, and consider the wider transformational um, implications of moving to cloud. Um, in terms of where we're planning to go next, So I'll mention this, we want to try to externalize as much of that functionality from those backbone nodes directly into the cloud providers using cloud nat uh, nat native cloud network services. That will directly um, allow us um, to get after our third generation cloud architecture, uh, which is effectively to move to a multi-account vending model where we can uh, vend out accounts to our different application teams and give them, or effectively go for a much more empowerment model where we can give them full fat access to um, to, to, to Amazon services. Together with that, we're looking to uh, move, um, or we're looking at the opportunity to move more of our inter-region traffic directly over the cloud providers' backbones. Um, and, if we, and taking all of that together, that will allow us to get after our regional data center footprint um, because it will give us much more agility and lower, lower the cost of entry to be able to drive um, network services into those regional cloud deployments. And then the final thing is we are just about to commence the rollout of um, um, an SD-WAN edge um, across most of our carpeted offices. It's about 640 carpeted offices globally. Um, that will allow us to move more of our um, traffic um, directly over the internet as opposed to MPLS. And alongside SaaS-based security controls, we can optimize the end user um, experience um, as we move more of our IT services to be directly internet facing, which is where, where we're heading. So that's a really fast run through of where we're going next. I think at that point we take some questions. We've probably got time for maybe one or two questions. Yeah, go ahead. Um, there's a mic there. How do you um, suggest handling getting data, particularly larger data sets, off the capture platforms out on vessels or out in the field where there is no 5G connection. Um, how, how, how can you get that data back in a, in a timely fashion for um, processing at the right cost? Do you want to handle that one? Yeah, you're mic'd up. Okay. So 
You'll have to do it on a case-by-case case basis. And it really depends on the actual uh, sites, in our case, where that applies. So if you take the Gulf of Mexico, we've rolled out fiber. Fiber networks effectively to all of our assets. So we needed, that, we, we needed that high throughput capability. So in that instance, we would take that data, cross that fiber network to a central facility. And from that point on, that facility interconnects into the closest backbone node that's available. In some instances, it may be a care and facility as well to proxy that communication. But in that, in that instance, we recognize that our assets there require fiber connectivity. Now, if you look at another region, for example, look at Alaska. We operate in Alaska and Anchorage. That's a challenge for us. I mean, right now, it's a challenge because that, that, that location is disadvantaged when it comes to connectivity. But we're, we're working with local carriers, with satellite providers, with you know, low-orbit satellite-type technologies to, to come together and, and actually create uh, a business solution effectively that addresses our requirements and others. I guess the answer to that is it depends on the use case, and it depends on where, where we're talking about. So we don't have a generic solution that, to address that yet. What if there is no connectivity at all? <laughs> I can't really answer that question. Yeah, I mean, You'd have to ship it. Links. <laughs> I mean, we've, we, we have instances where it's just too much that we'd have to actually physically ship the data. But, you know, we're hoping with 5G, low Earth orbit satellite and other technologies that that, that problem starts to go away. And just, sorry, just on that to jump in, and there are a number of projects of ongoing at BP using Snowball, so they're using that to Hurry move up. data where there's no network. So we're making good use of that in a number of use cases as well. Okay, Paul, there's a question over here. Probably, we've got like 20 seconds. Talk quick. <laughs> this will be quick. On a percentage basis, um, where are you at along in your data center exit? Are you 50% out? Or are you, you know? So we've got, um, good question. we've got four primaries. <clears throat> so two, two in the UK, um, one up in Chicago, one down in Houston. Our data center exit has focused on Houston. We're probably about 55, 60% of the way out of Houston. But we're taking an app-led migration approach at the moment. So as we drain Houston, we're actually draining some of the other data centers as well, because typically an app will have multiple environments um, in, in different regions. So taking Houston out is taking some of the others out. Great. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Have a good rest of the day. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.